Hi, this is Kip. Before we get to our great conversation with Timor Ender, a couple quick notes. Steph Rouse's campaign kickoff party is coming up on the 26th. The Portland Committee for Community Engaged Policing's recommendation discussion on Portland Street Response has been rescheduled for the 31st of this month. You can find both on our events page at Progress Portland website, where you can also subscribe to get updates. We'll be posting on social media too. We have more exciting interviews coming up and we'll have our very first newsletter coming out in the near future. Now on to the interview. Welcome to the Progress Portland podcast. I'm Tim Halbert. I'm Kip Silverman. And today we have with us Tamor Ender. He is running in District 1, the east side. And uh, Tamor, I wanted to start by letting you know I was at Sister's Ethiopian Restaurant a few weeks ago, and they love you there. I saw, <laughs> I saw the poster on the wall. I asked them about it. They were like, great man. <laughs> we love him. Uh, tell me about, uh, did you have an event there? Yeah, we had our campaign kickoff there. Yeah, nice. I've known the owner of Katama for probably five, six years now. So yeah, it's part of why I love East Portland. We have um, a great diversity of uh, small businesses like that and international grocery stores. And so, you know, sometimes I just pinch myself. I'm like, wait, where am I? Am I still in Portland? Um, <laughs> it's just a really beautiful spot in that sense, East Portland. Nice. Tell me, tell me a little more about the district because, uh, you know, I'm, I've lived here about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not out that far uh, for for me, that's farther. Sure. Farther. Um, so tell me about the personality of it. How does it feel related to downtown Portland? Is there animosity? What's the connection? You How know, different is it? Yeah, I would say I kind of think of it as the middle of the region. Um, I personally find it demographically, it's more related. East of 82nd Avenue is more similar to Gresham than it is uh, west of Portland in terms of the diversity of uh, cultures. You know, we have 100 languages represented in East Portland. Um, are, we're lucky to be part of that. We speak Turkish at home with our family. Um, we have the airport, wide arterials. I-205 is kind of the mental and physical line of kind of de defining East Portland. So I was glad to see uh, the geographic boundaries reflect that. You know, one thing I'm excited about is health outcomes. Uh, I'm not sure if people realize this, but East Portlanders have about 10 years lower life expectancy than the rest of the city. Wow. And that's due to uh, traffic crashes, gun violence, uh, historic disinvestment. And one of the reasons I jumped in this race is this is the first time we will have politically drawn boundaries that are accountable to those health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And yep. really, we haven't had that before. Um, and so that's something I'm uh, really excited about. And, and hopefully people are thinking about that. And so uh, assuming I do get elected, my definition of success is have we improved health outcomes and extended life expectancy and reduced the disparities that we see from other parts of the city? That's a great place to start. Your website hits on a lot of really important things about infrastructure, safety, um, livability, you worked for uh, Portland Bureau of Transportation for a while. That's correct. And I'm really curious about the problems east of 82nd, east mm -hmm. of 205 are well documented about no sidewalks, high-speed roads, mm -hmm. a handful of investments in bike lanes, mm -hmm. but still you might have to walk half a mile to get to a crosswalk, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Um with all the quote-unquote challenges PBOT currently has of just doing, 
what seemed like basic services mm-hmm. and the threat to cut back on public safety. How have you seen or not seen the progression of focus on that area over the years? It feels to me like there's some pet projects, but no cohesive planning around solving a lot of the problems. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. So um, one of the privileges I had of working in city government was uh, delivering a lot of the priorities of East Portland Action Plan and East Portland in Motion. And for people who aren't familiar with that, it's you can kind of think of it as participatory budgeting. And mm. we had community members who articulated their priorities for East Portland in terms of um, getting Powell fixed, um, safe sidewalks to uh, David Douglas High School, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I was the person on the inside of city government matching those uh, priorities and visions with either grants we're going to apply or for or uh, fixing our streets funding. And then uh, as the project manager, delivering those voter approved uh, funds and projects to meet the goals and outcomes of East Portland. And so um you know, some of the arterial redesigns um, in East Portland I had the privilege of managing those uh, paving projects, street trees, ADA ramps, street lighting, um, and delivering roughly $30 million of voter-approved funding, a majority mm-hmm. of which was in uh, East Portland. And so uh, that's kind of my priority and focus is uplifting uh, community goals like that. And one of the reasons I jumped in this race was just frustration that we weren't funding, continuing to fund those planning processes to the level we need. uh, Because as an elected official, you know, I don't ever want to have to guess where my community is on something. And when we uplift those participatory budgeting and community-based planning initiatives like that, it provides clear direction to both city staff and elected officials. And then at that point, we can start fighting for that money and those projects to get on the ground. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I was reading your bio on LinkedIn, and I was really interested in the fact that you had a a bachelor's in criminology, Mm -hmm. and that you also, it seems, it looks like you worked as an EMT, or Uh, you you got a credential, credential, just a credential, credential, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. so I'm just telling me about, uh, like, what what inspired you to do both of those things, and how do they continue to influence you? Absolutely, so um, my dad was a doctor, and so uh, I never went to, like, health or, you know, medical school or anything like that. But that lens did inspire me a little bit. So health very much influences how I see the world. And I'll come to that in a little bit. But, you know, I went to NC State University, North Carolina State University, and uh, majored in criminology, did an internship at the district attorney's office there. And really what I saw was almost like an assembly line of, okay, what's your past criminal history? What did you do? Here's your sentence. And and really, it mm-hmm. it was frustrating to me that we couldn't address some of the root issues that led to those outcomes. And then around that same time, I would bike, you know, th- around Raleigh, North Carolina, my hometown, and see the disparities, whether it was sidewalks or lack of trees in some neighborhoods. And that was right around the change time when climate change started becoming a, a, a more important issue. And really, it, so then I started becoming more interested and passionate about cities and local government and built environment. I applied to a whole bunch of law schools because my LSAT score was not that good. I didn't get in. And so then I kind of took an EMT class at NC State just to kind of figure out my next steps. And then when I did get into law school, I did a year in San Diego and then moved uh, up here to Portland to finish at Lewis and Clark Law School. 
you know, I did feel a little bit like a fish out of water because I'm in law school, but yet my interest is in health and local government and transportation. But then I was able to see other lawyers who um, had gone into local government and did some important things. And so through internships at like the Federal Transit Administration, Congressman Blumenauer's office in the Port of Portland and local government, I was able to like channel my future in a way that I landed where I wanted to be in terms of working in city government, uh, influencing policy, influencing budgets, and really crafting strategies and solutions to uh, meet the needs of my community in East Portland. Yeah, it's interesting to see you know, the LinkedIn view of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then look at the yeah. Instagram stuff and uh-huh. knit together who is this person. Exactly. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. And and uh, again, the bullet points on your vision for East Portland reflect a lot of what you've already said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's switch around. I definitely mm-hmm. want to come back to public safety, mm-hmm. transportation, things of that. Um, sure. One of the things I really liked on here is no zip code being proportionally burdened by harmful infrastructure, mm-hmm. which we touched on. But um, also, youth have wealth have a wealth of job training opportunities mm-hmm. in building green infrastructure that lead to good paying jobs, and elders able to age in place with access to transit, community, social resources. Mm-hmm. All, all of that seemed deeply tied together. And I'm wondering if you can uh, expand on some of those ideas and the things that uh, with your experience, uh, both in the government side Mm -hmm. and lived experience, what some of your visions for being able to advocate for that are. Sure. Yeah. So I think one of the alarming trends that we're seeing these days is uh, seniors uh, becoming one of the populations at greatest risk for housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to be doing everything we can to uh, keep people housed because, you know, I keep looking at it from a budget perspective of like the second someone loses their housing, we're spending now infinitely more to um, address all of those issues. Um, and I, I, I have the same lens when it comes to gun violence. You know, if we're not doing something like a gun buyback program to get guns off the street, then the second that bullet is fired, we are spending tens mm. of thousands of dollars within 30 minutes of law enforcement and fire bureau. And these are precious discretionary fund dollars that can go to anything. And so the more we can do upstream the more we're able to stretch our general fund dollars to really maximize benefit for the community. In terms of other things for older adults, I'm a big believer in eight to 80 cities, which is this concept that, you know, if you design for the young and the elderly, everyone benefits kind of like universal design. Mm. Um, And so I've been a big proponent of, uh, you know, ADA ramps, accessibility and things like that and access to transit and I think transit really needs a, a pretty significant course correction in East Portland. The, one of the buses in my neighborhood along Northeast Gleason comes once every 70 minutes, seven zero. And, you know, when we're talking about access to community college, access to healthcare facilities, mm-hmm. we know Gateway has a lot of healthcare uh, jobs and resources. Um, that really is insufficient for the need, particularly when somewhere around 30% of Oregonians don't drive because of age, ability, choice, or other barrier. And so the more that we're able to provide these multimodal facilities, mm-hmm. um, and really I think of bike lanes and sidewalks 
more like parks than transportation because mm-hmm. of fostering social interaction, mental health benefits, physical health benefits. I was really pleased to see recently Commissioner Rubio's proposal to use uh, PCEF dollars, Portland Clean Energy Fund dollars, for maintenance of biking and walking facilities, more street lighting and safe routes to school and mm-hmm. uh, Sunday parkways type things, because those really have indescribable benefits to East Portland in terms of, you know, getting kids to school safely. You know, right outside my house, we have the street where two elementary schools and then in the middle, it's there's it's just a gravel shoulder um, which when it rains just turns into puddles. And so we have kids walking in ditches mm. right now. And it's, and I, I don't think people realize that a lot of these like infrastructure disparities that we see in East Portland and, you know, really came to a forefront with the, the recent heat dome, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, Steph Ralph mentioned in the podcast as well as some of the um, highest fatality rates, because we have a lot of asphalt and concrete and not enough tree cover to really provide mitigation against urban heat island effect. Now, you've worked in transportation in the city for a while now. Correct. Portland used to be it used to be the pride of the U.S. Mm-hmm. in certain ways in terms of transit infrastructure that was built, the light rail, the, the max, all of that. What went wrong and, and how do we fix it? That's a basic That's question. That's just a little question. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. I think we haven't paid enough attention to how some of our most vulnerable are able to utilize our public mm-hmm. streets and how they experience public spaces. Um, so when we, for example, and part of it is, who, you know, who we listen to. Um, when mm-hmm. one, one of the projects we did when I was at the city was we asked people about their, you know, top five priorities. And, um, you know, I think street lighting was number fifth. Um, but then when we focused on black Portlanders on what is your highest priority, street lighting was number one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me as a transportation person, that was kind of like a mental shift because, we realized how important street lighting was, not just for traffic safety, but for personal safety. And so mm-hmm. people feeling safe in the right of way. And then that also allows, obviously, for people to be more likely to walk or bike at night, um, whether it's to, for nightlife or other things like that. So who we listen to and then um, really delivering on those in a way that addresses inequities and you know making sure certain parts of the city, such as East Portland, are not left behind. And then I think there's the transportation piece, but obviously I think housing is another key component. You know, if people are getting displaced because they can't afford to live in the inner city, and right now I'm seeing it at my child's elementary school where we have people moving further east. East Portland is one of the highest areas of displacement risk in the entire city. And so now we have people from inner Portland moving to East Portland and East people from East Portland moving to Troutdale. And so we have this migration and, you know, when that happens, it's... I live car free in East Portland, but that's really hard to do, um, especially with the distances, you know, the interstate's a barrier. And so that's why I'm a huge proponent of uh, Portland Neighbors Welcome Inner East Side for All campaign, which seeks to increase density between 12th, Powell, Fremont and 60th um, with things like accessory dwelling units. Because really, if we're able to have more people live in transit rich areas with low displacement risk and high tree canopy, then that way we can um, mitigate some of the displacement pressures that are occurring in my neighborhood in East Portland, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes sense. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see it in, in, in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the infill project had some promises on being able to create more affordable housing 
within those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we've actually seen that benefit yet. I I don't want to spiral into the uh, infill project stuff because I have lots of spicy thoughts about it. But to what you were just referring to, the allocation of resources to problem solve, have a little bit of insight into it. My uh, One of my kids was for uh, over a year, branch library manager at Rockwood Library. Oh, okay. That's that kid's jam. They love problem solving with areas that are underserved mm-hmm. and um, need help. Mm-hmm. And, and they're really good at that. Um, what I learned from that is that while that branch serves the largest group of Portlanders, mm-hmm. it also has the smallest amount of square footage. Mm. If you have the ability to self-advocate, one of the biggest problems is being able to do so in front of city council. Mm -hmm. So if you have a bus that's running every 70 minutes um, and you have to take the day off and you might get three minutes Mm -hmm. to testify in city council, that's not going to happen. So it's a lot of background to get to how do we ensure that folks in your district have a better voice, better access. We've talked about the potentiality of city council offices in the districts as Mm -hmm. well as downtown Mm -hmm. and other means for people to provide public input and gather it and make sure all voices are heard. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about some of your thoughts on the nine things I just mentioned. Um, Sure. (laughs) Sure. Well, we can see uh, what's already worked. I I know Rosewood Initiative, um, located near 141st and Southeast Stark Street, they've done a lot in terms of community empowerment and um, highlighting some of the issues that we've seen. One of the things I mentioned earlier with East Portland in Motion, really funding those community-based initiatives. I kind of see it as marching orders. You know, the community says this is our priorities, and then we kind of go fight and get those things implemented. The other thing, too, is, you know, we we lack these gathering spaces. I don't think mm-hmm. people realize that there is only one library in East Portland. And it's not Rockwood because that's in Gresham. Oh, it's, right. yeah, which is fair. I mean, Midland Library is the only one and it's undergoing um, a year long renovation. Mm-hmm. And so literally there's no library in East Portland, east of 82nd Avenue for over a year. That's terrible. Uh, I know. It's, no one thinks about 160, these things. 160,000 people. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like when you don't have political representation around these um, mm. boundaries where people haven't had these level of investment that's necessary and, you know, just one bookmobile a few days a week just doesn't cut it. No. And so we, part of it is you have to have these, these community spaces to really um, bring people together. Um, and some of that's, you know, public things such as libraries, other times it's nonprofits such as Roadwood Initiative. And so we, yeah, we, we just need to do a, a lot better job on some of these things. There, I don't think there's any one answer. Part of it is voting. You know, who do you vote for? Are we voting for people that are really focused on listening to those community voices and helping uplift? And then other things that work are, you know, I'm a big proponent of focus groups. And the reason I mm-hmm. say that is I see them as uh, introvert friendly. As someone who kind of leans introverted, you are able to solicit a richness of feedback from someone. And it's not just about who's the loudest in the room. That's why the focus groups I mentioned earlier, such as uh, Black Portlanders and their priorities, when we were able to like focus a little bit, we're able to kind of pull out some important details that we may not, we may otherwise miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of being the loudest in the room, um, I was looking at your website and saw that you 
you're here listening to the community. You're also listening to business. Mm -hmm. The the business influence can seem kind of all pervasive, depending on uh, who the city councilor is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you listen? What do you think the the business community of Portland wants, and how do we balance that with the needs of the of the communities themselves? You know, one of the things I hear from small businesses um, in East Portland is break-ins are an issue, and really that stretches our police to really respond to those day after day. This one business owner I spoke to said somewhere around like 80 times they were burglarized. And and oh. and so finally, um, they were able to receive some capital storefront revitalization money. So now their storefront looks beautiful and has some deterrence and stronger protection against burglary. That's, in my view, a win-win in terms of uh, now, they're, hopefully, they're getting less police response because they, they're not getting burglarized as much and their store looks better. But really, I think our community thrives when everyone thrives. And so um, kind of creating those thriving environments, whether it's, you know, housing near businesses. So you're creating those customers if you, you know, have housing located near businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Halsey-Widler district right now, um, which for people who don't know, it's uh, 102nd along Halsey roughly to 111th. I mean, we have vacant land in the business district. And really, it's hard to conduct business when you have a vacant lot in front of you. And I think particularly in areas where city government has intentionally focused tax increment financing money, Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure money through fixing our streets, uh, new protected bike lanes and sidewalk infill and streetscape, we really need to be making sure that those infrastructure projects yield their full potential and connecting with landowners and saying, look, you need to start moving on this property. You can't just be sitting on here forever. I mean, yeah. let's let's start moving. Otherwise, we need to look at other tools, wh- whether it's kind of trying to incentivize or buying that property so we can start moving mm-hmm. on that because um, it's not fair for business owners to try to conduct business when we have people who are just kind of sitting on vacant lots. Yeah. Um, in and, urban planning, we call that uh, the broken teeth in the smile. Oh, Okay. Hadn't heard that before. That don't attract people, and it's also I mean, yeah. it's also a matter of eyes on the street. Yes. I don't know if you've heard the term yes. eyes on the street. So that that the perspective of like safety drops off immediately if you don't mm-hmm. have if you have low lighting or if you have a, an empty lot you have to walk past. Yeah, and I don't think people realize how much of an issue vacant lots are in East Portland. I mean, when I walk around my neighborhood, I mean, I I'm kind of confronted with, with these uh, somewhat frequently, and I think there is some evidence that suggests you know. With vacant lots, you know, gun violence becomes a a larger issue, too. Going back to what you said with the eyes on the street, in 2022, our family lived in Turkey for a year. And, you know, you have these streets with six, seven stories with balconies. And so, you know, you literally have the eyes on the street in terms of like people at night sitting out on their balcony, kind of looking out on the street. Um, And so... Um, I do think it does kind of create a little bit of a safer environment when you have the 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 density and then the vibrant street mm-hmm. life to support that together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Part of that makes me think about the downtown task force that's mm-hmm. been going on the last few months and my own frustration with it being focused on downtown. Mm-hmm. Not that downtown doesn't need help or reimagining or fixing, um, but without development Mm-hmm. further out um, without a focus on being able to live near businesses mm-hmm. or bringing businesses near where people live, mm-hmm. which would be, I think, a great idea. 
we don't get the results that we're looking for from an equity and, and livability standpoint. There was an effort in 2017 to have some federal investment in smart city kind oh, of initiatives, yeah. mm-hmm. which were for better traffic flow, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for providing more information to people, for lighting and safety and mm-hmm. uh, other things. And kind of feels like that fell off the map, I can guess, from the federal administration that was in place over those years, that might be part of it. But I'm, I'm really curious about your thoughts on some of the smart city initiative things that were going to be in place and where we can be smarter using uh, good data, technology, mm-hmm. um, where, where all that merges together. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think I'll just start with something simple, which is real-time transit information in bus shelters. Mm. Um, because, you know, well, I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons people choose light rail is when you see those tracks on the ground, you know a train is coming. And with a bus, you're just like, is this bus coming? <laughs> So, you know, having those things and and people, you know, when with biking, you know, there's protected bike lanes and there's bike racks. But with transit, we just put a pole on the side of the road and call it good. And Mm -hmm. it's like we need those shelters. We need those lighting. We need the access to Mm -hmm. transit um, and dignified places for people to wait and real time information. So really, we enhance the transit experience. because transit is such so intersectional to so many issues, whether it's climate, housing, job access, health, and all of these things, you know, I would love to see more transit display screens in East Portland. The other thing I'll say, too, is I was part of a team that traveled to D.C. to represent the city of Portland mm. um, at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Um, I think we were one of like seven finalists. You know, we learned a lot. We put forward a good application. I think we ended up in the unofficially in the top three. That wasn't uh, super public. During that process, I kept coming back to smart city is great. It, it really is. You you know, you can do a lot, but we also just need some dumb sidewalks. Um, <laughs> and and if we can not lose sight of mm-hmm. the basics yeah. and not get too focused on chasing shiny objects, uh, particularly when, you know, there are people who are anticipate making a lot of money off of these things. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we get the most benefit out of these things? And so I think another example is, you know, car sharing. Um, We just had, I think, Free to Move left Portland. Mm -hmm. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I live uh, car free with two kids in East Portland. And my nearest car sharing option, I think, is a two mile walk. In inner Portland, you know, you have this richness of choice, whether mm-hmm. it's bike share, scooter, car sharing options, transit, walking even because of proximity. Um, we lose a lot of those things in, in East Portland. You know, the the bike share system doesn't even go out to the edge of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it stops midway in our district. When we're talking about addressing climate change, we have to provide these choices to people. You know, when scooters first launched in Portland, you know, they, it was so popular with kids in terms of ridership to school. It just kind of highlighted some of the glaring need um, of those different options, particularly for people who don't have a driver's license. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm committed to. It, it, it should not be this hard to live without a car. Um, and it's, the suburban environment is one thing, you know, you can, you can only affect that so much, 
but in terms of channeling the private sector to achieve publicly beneficial outcomes, um, we really need to do a, as much as we can so that, you know, if you are launching car share in Portland, how do we make sure East Portland isn't left behind? Because, you know, a lot of people do need these opportunities. All right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, going back to your website, I wanted to flag from your bio, mm-hmm. um, you're the son of immigrants. Sure. You you say in your bio that you were reliant on services, you know, that uh, public services mm-hmm. were were crucial to your, your ability to survive. I feel like that's a bit of a theme right now. And it's, it's so great to see people who have lived the fact that we are not all independent uh, <laughs> cowboys, that, that, that you have to be, you know, that yeah. services are good for people and that, sure. that you, I think you have a different perspective having had to rely on those, on services. Yeah, yeah. So my dad came to the U.S. Uh, when he was nine and, you know, through scholarships and um, kind of, I think, working through school was able to um, attend med school. And then my mom immigrated to the U.S. around the age of 24 um, with uh, low-income legal aid services. And so that's always been kind of in the in my heart as well. And so in 2017, I had the privilege of being part of a group of lawyers who traveled to the U.S. southern border to provide uh, legal aid to mm. um, families who were separated and asylum seekers. And that was really an eye-opening experience of the clearest way to describe it is it's like a modern day trail of tears. And so you're interviewing these women for credible fear interviews for their asylum cases. And almost instantly the trauma comes out and it's, it was really eye opening experience. And I'm, I'm glad I had that opportunity. And so for me, that ignites a passion of, you know, how can we make our cities inclusive and welcoming spaces? The other reason inclusiveness is so important to me is as someone who is kind of Middle Eastern first generation I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened, and Mm. unfortunately, these events are not distant for me. One of my uh, close friends was actually uh, murdered in an Islamophobic hate crime, Mm. and Mm. so I I feel these things uh, very closely in terms of, really, we have to create these inclusive spaces where all of our communities are able to thrive that's kind of what I've had the privilege to do in local government is doing my best to address policies and budgets to meet the needs of East Portland communities and and the entire diversity of what that means. That's kind of what I'm committed to kind of going forward as well. Oh, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. To that end, uh, inclusivity, diversity, mm-hmm. community, you mentioned being in Turkey and everybody hangs out in the street and sees each other and knows yeah. each other. And it's kind of an experience I had with friends of mine who grew up in the Bronx. Mm. And I grew up outside of New York City. We'd go and everybody's like, hey, haven't seen you in a couple years. How are you? And I'm yeah. like, how does everybody know each other? The challenges of respecting diversity, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that neighborhoods come together as neighborhoods and not groups of people who have and have not. A lot of the challenges we have in in Portland was really exposed in 2020, Mm -hmm. the summer of unrest. And I ran across an article uh, where you were quoted about tear gas in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, My two younger kids were living right across 205 at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. It was still maybe half a mile away Mm -hmm. um, where that particular incident happened. It 
came across the highway yeah. and still affected them. I'm super curious about, first of all, your experience and your perception on the accountability or lack thereof from what happened mm -hmm. and the importance of equity, transparency, accountability, and policing, because mm -hmm. that's kind of a huge topic right now. Yeah. Are you referring to the specific incident where I was on the news? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so just for people who weren't aware, um, in roughly around September 5th, 2020, on the 100th day of protest, Portland police deployed multiple tear gas rounds directly outside my driveway. And um, that tear gas almost made it inside our house with two young kids. People can listen to it online. It's on OPB. You know, one of the things I was saying is you had people who had, had fled dangerous regimes on the other side of the world only to have tear gas in their bedroom from our local government. One of the things I talked about was it was a really nice day. So a lot of people had their windows open. It was windy, which, as you said, allowed the tear gas to hit large swaths of East Portland. Um, and the point I made was I don't think this would have happened in the Pearl District, mm -hmm. where people live in half-million-dollar condos and have the mayor or the governor on speed dial. Mm -hmm. And the people in my neighborhood do not have the mayor or the governor on speed dial. I felt the tactics were different because it was East Portland. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's not fair. That's not fair. Um, you know, the police tactics should not be different, whether it's a low-income community or it's in the Pearl District with a whole bunch of high-rises. I filed a claim against the city and received $2,000, and some of that money was donated to uh, Oregon Justice Resource Center mm. and other groups like ACLU um, who try to address these things on a more systemic level. I would instantly give that money back to the city um, to have avoided the trauma of that evening. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and thank you for sharing and recounting sure. it. Yeah. Because um, uh, it, it's it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. Um Police Accountability Commission recently, after two and a half years, mm -hmm. gave their recommendations to city council on how to make uh, Portland Police Bureau more accountable. Um, mm. And city council took those recommendations, reviewed them in private, which, from what I understand for process, was for legal reasons, mm -hmm. um, but then came up with their own recommendations and voted to approve the... Portland city attorney mm -hmm. to present them to the Department of Justice mm -hmm. for review as part of the consent decree from 2012 Department of Justice versus City of Portland, mm -hmm. uh, the police using too much violence. I struggle with the process because there is an open process for the community to come out meet with the accountability commission, mm -hmm. provide input, what the community wanted to see. Mm -hmm. The commissioners had every opportunity to give their input. Then when they got the recommendations, they, they changed things pretty drastically. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering with a new city council, hopefully with mindful folks like you on it, what do you see that we can do differently on helping manage and steer the Portland Police Bureau to being more accountable and transparent and have the right level of oversight so that these uh, there were 200 days of unrest, I believe they counted, and tear gas mm -hmm. and strong arm tactics were used in most of them. 
Mm-hmm. And I still feel like there hasn't been a lot of accountability on that. What are your ideas on what an equitable police force looks like and how to, in, in, in a city council position, mm-hmm. to influence that? Sure. I think, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, with the 911 matrix, how do we make sure we're sending the right response to mm-hmm. the right location at the right time? And so I think step one is Portland Street response needs to live up to its full potential. Um, and so I'm a proud to have signed the Friends of Portland Street Response mm-hmm. Pledge um, because I think if we're able to really allow that to thrive in the way that it was intended to, I think that will address some issues. I was also following the what you mentioned with the Police Accountability Commission, and I think one of the things was, you know, requiring people to attend ride-alongs. And, you know, I think one of the concerns was, you know, some people who have lived experience with police mm-hmm. violence, that might be uh, re-traumatizing to them. That shouldn't be a tool. You know, if people want to go on ride-alongs, you know, it needs to be an even thing. Like, I'll just highlight on August 23rd, I submitted a document to go on a ride-along, and I haven't heard back. I mean, it's now four or five months later. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you're going to say do a ride-along, then it should be quickly available for people who want to do it. And so it shouldn't be like this barrier. Um, and I totally understand that some people would be traumatized, and they have their own lived experiences that are valuable, that requiring them to do a ride-along isn't going to change anything. The other thing I'll say is we can look at other tools of city government. So for example, one of the things I would like to do is if there is a traffic collision that is minor in nature and no significant other facts of it's not a hit and run, and the only thing that city government needs to do is help facilitate exchanging insurance information, closing lanes, calling a tow truck, there's no reason an unarmed PS3, uh, public safety support specialists who are members of the police bureau but are unarmed. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why those individuals can't help facilitate that. Mm. They can call a tow truck. They can put out some cones to make sure there's no secondary collisions, and they can help people facilitate. And so looking at things that city government can do. Another thing, I think, based off of New York City, their transportation department is more heavily involved in fatality response. We need to get to a point where, you know, police do a great job of closing the scene, toxic blood alcohol scanning, crash reconstruction, but their vision is culpability and liability, which is what it should be. They're police officers. But there is a stronger role to play for a transportation department looking at the systems was the road wet? What are the lane widths? What are the lighting? Mm-hmm. Is there a CIP capital improvement project at this location in the next few years? So that kind of almost like a NTSB. Mm-hmm. Um, when, a, when a plane crashes, there's all this focus on what happened. And it's not just the pilot. It's the maintenance, everything around it. And, you know, we have 40,000 people dying in traffic crashes in the U.S. And we don't really blink an eye. Mm-hmm. And really, local government is the designer of our nation's city streets. And we need to have a stronger presence um, so that because what I see in East Portland is these crashes occur at the same location over and Mm -hmm. over again. And so really taking that systemic view, because as someone who's worked in city government, those crash reports, they look at speed and alcohol. I mean, that's great, but 
those reports go to ODOT. The city doesn't get them until, you know, one or two years later. Mm. And literally city staff find out about traffic fatalities, uh, sometimes through social media. And when you have the people who are designing city streets, not able to get that richness of data in real time, then we're at, we're operating at a data deficit. Mm. And what I, another truth I have from living in East Portland is the locations where traffic fatalities occur are almost exactly to the intersection where gun violence occurs. And when Mm. you see these two things intersect, largely due to underinvestment, you look at where these crashes occur and, you know, the street lighting's deficient, the ADA curb ramps aren't up to snuff, and the lane widths are wide, the pedestrian facilities are substandard. And so really looking at all of these things from an intersectional lens um, and, you know, street trees, they're deficient. And so all of these things kind of coming together and really, you know, how are we then able to improve these health outcomes in a way that can almost lift multiple boats, if that makes sense? No, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Tamar, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate your broad perspective, both on how everything comes together and also your really specific aspects of how well you understand your neighborhood. It's 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 really refreshing. Oh, thanks so much. Can I just make a one final pitch? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll just say to Portlanders, I think a lot of people are focused on who's running in your own district, which is great. But uh, I would just ask people to please pay attention to who is running in other districts mm-hmm. because you and your district will only have three votes. And for council to pass significant policy, that requires seven votes. Mm -hmm. And so while you may not be able to vote for people in other districts when your ballot comes, what you can do is vote with your dollar today with the small donor election program. You can go to the city's website or uh, Rose City Reform has a list of all the candidates and their websites. You know, click around, see whose websites and candidates share your values and you can give 5 or $20 to them. And through the small donor election program, we're able to lift up candidates uh, all across the city who share these values. And so uh, just encouraging people to take a broad view of city council. And ideally, hopefully the people that we're electing, you know, they're representing their district. But, you know, we do need to have a citywide focus on how these things shake out. And then the other thing I'll say is the importance of ranked choice voting. Um, mm-hmm. So you as a voter, you get to rank six different choices. And the what I keep saying is, you know, rank all six, because mm-hmm. if you're able to rank all six, that is the most, you're increasing the likelihood that even if the people you voted for don't win, you're increasing the likelihood of your values being represented on city council. Absolutely. No, yeah. really appreciate that. Um, also, um, before we let you go, speaking of what you were just talking about, how do people find you? Sure. On Instagram, uh, I'm at Ender in East Portland, and our website is Ender4EastPortland.com, and it's the number four. And just wanted to say thank you to Kip and Tim for this opportunity. It's been uh, really great talking with y'all this afternoon. Really glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been the Progress Portland Podcast. Our theme music is The Acrobats by the Portland band Helvetia.